there's really no excuse I can give you. So all I can tell you is that we make mistakes as well. And a lot of building a company is like trying to learn from the mistakes and just get better over time. Hello there from England. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got the long-awaited interview with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong, where no questions were off-limits. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Now with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and earn money on your Bitcoin. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan, and you can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now access all their services from your mobile phone. With so much more coming this year from the team, it looks like it's going to be another huge year for the company. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, let's talk about Kraken and why they are the best place for you to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Firstly, their world-class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, they will help you out with any issues you have, whoever you are and wherever you are. They have the most comprehensive suite of tools for buying Bitcoin. At Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and buy Bitcoin. And if you're at Starbucks, if you're at the McDonald's drive through and you're thinking, I want some more Bitcoin, it could not be easier than using Kraken Pro, their beautiful mobile-first app. And with margin trading, futures, and their OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, on to the show. And this is a big one. This is an interview I've been trying to get for such a long time. It's Brian Armstrong, and he recently tweeted out that he wanted to do more interviews, so I reached out to Brian, and we agreed to do this. But it was clear at the very start there needs to be no questions off limits, and he was game. It was really important to have that, because I didn't want to do the interview and people thinking I softballed him. I wanted him to know that, look, we need to do the tough questions. And I also think it's worth explaining my approach to the interview in advance, When I posted that the interview was coming on Twitter, there were a lot of people dropping me comments and sliding into my DMs with the questions they wanted asking and telling me that I had to go hard at Brian. And I certainly wanted to ask the big questions, but no productive interview is constructed on a platform of hostility. And it's rare for Brian to do such an interview, so I wanted to create a bridge to ask these tough questions whilst maintaining an open dialogue. And listen, Coinbase isn't going away. It will likely remain one of the biggest Bitcoin companies and on-ramps. Therefore, having this dialogue with Brian is helpful and hopefully influential. For me, it's helpful to understand the nature of their relationships with regulators and government agencies and also to be able to put across key issues that Bitcoiners have and discuss these in a long-form interview. Now, people can just fight Coinbase. And they can just push the hashtag delete Coinbase on Twitter and shout insults at Brian. But as I said, Coinbase is not going away. And if an interview like this leads to Coinbase funding open source development, allowing greater scrutiny on their decisions and pushback in areas such as privacy, then I feel it has been productive. Also note, we had just under two hours booked in for this and we ran out of time. If there are questions I didn't ask that you hoped I would, then I'm sorry. I actually had six pages of questions and points. And I just prioritized what I felt like I really needed to cover. So the history of Coinbase, what happened with S2X, privacy, Coinbase analytics, and also what happened with Neutrino. 
I will also be pushing for a follow-up interview because I do want to get through some of the other subjects I didn't have time for and also to follow up on some of the things we discussed. I do want to thank Brian for doing this interview and being candid with me. Whilst I may not agree with him on everything and I don't want to give too much away about what we discussed, I think this was progress. I also recognise that some people won't like this interview. I expect they made that decision before listening to it anyway and some people will say I didn't push hard enough and others will think maybe I did a good job. This is the spectrum of responses that you end up dealing with when you're trying to tackle an interview like this and the complex subjects around Bitcoin. Anyway, I'm happy to take feedback. Always happy to take feedback. If you have any questions, you have any points, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, just want to shout out a thanks to a few people who helped me prepare for this interview. Lee Quinn, Matt O'Dell and Janine. I really appreciate the time you all gave me to help me discuss and prepare around a few of the subjects that I discussed with Brian. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the interview. Have a great weekend and I will see you soon. Brian, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast and uh, great to finally meet you as well. Uh, and you as well. Um, so I was saying to you that I didn't know if I'd ever get this interview. Uh, I've prided myself on getting everyone. I got Zabo on. I went out to Japan and interviewed Car Palace. Uh, I never thought I'd get this one, but I've always wanted it. And it kind of felt like you didn't do a lot of podcast interviews. So firstly, thank you for agreeing to do this. And, and how come you decided to do this? Because you obviously know there's going to be some tough questions coming. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's totally fine. And, you know, the first thing people should probably know about me is that I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert. So that might sound strange as uh, the CEO of a company, but <clears throat> I've never really loved doing a ton of external facing stuff. But what I've done over the years is I've tried to find a way to make it work for me. So, you know, over the years of Coinbase, I did some kind of traditional media interviews. Some of those were okay, but they oftentimes you end up kind of, um, you know, doing an interview and you get like one or two lines quoted or something in an article that's otherwise not really the message you want to get out there in the world. So I kind of really appreciate the, this sort of new form of media that's happening. And I just decided a few months ago, I was like, you know what, I want to go do a bunch of podcasts and like more YouTube and like kind of the channels where, you know, our young, our audience is and our customer base is now listening to those things. So you were one of the people that uh, got recommended to me on Twitter. And I, I've been listening to your stuff over the years, by the way, as well. So I'm happy. I know that your your audience probably is mixed in their views and everything like that. But I think that just makes it a better discussion. So happy to do it. Great. Well, there is a lot of pressure on this interview, and there'll be a lot of people watching. There's been pressure on me that I ask uh, the right questions in the right way, and, and there's pressure. there'll be pressure on your answers, and there'll be a lot of eyeballs on this. And one of the things I did going into this and preparing is uh, I'm, I'm not one of the most hardcore Bitcoiners out there. Quite a few of them have me blocked as well. I, I, I don't tweet out delete coinbase and <laughs> i i you know one of the things i I've, i'm a coin i was a coinbase customer very early on i bought a lot of bitcoin with coinbase it's, it has the best user experience out there uh, obviously for transparency kraken's a, a sponsor now and i use them but i'm historically a fan of coinbase and the company's not going to go away it's a huge company one of the biggest in bitcoin but there is this kind of gap between you coinbase and let's say more of the influential Bitcoiners in the community. And I felt like if we could start this conversation, we can have this, you know, and maybe it'll be one interview, maybe it'll be two, but we can start building that that kind of relationship and, and, and start addressing some of the issues. And, you know, I can put some questions to you, you can put the responses back, you know, people will maybe understand some of your decisions, maybe there'll be some compromises, maybe there'll be con some concessions, but I felt like this would be a good platform to start that conversation. For sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. You know, I've always been happy to engage with people over the years. And I think it's one of those kind of 
things about the internet, right? Which is that it's really easy to be, <laughs> you know, question someone's motives or think they're kind of a jerk. You read their stuff online and then usually you meet them in person and you're like, okay, they're just like a reasonable person. So it's actually, I'll tell you, it's almost, I can't think of a single time anybody's ever in person been kind of like mean to me or rude to me. I think it's the vast majority of people out there in the world, they recognize that, you know, we have the same ideals, but there's different ways to get there. And you got to try to build a company and the company is trying to have one foot in the regulated world and one foot in the crypto world. And so most people are very reasonable and they understand that, but there's a small intransigent minority on Twitter who gets their voices amplified. Yeah, I know. I've, I've met some people who've given me a hard time on Twitter in person and usually it starts with an apology. Oh, sorry, I was so rude. Um, and that's why, you know, I think these, uh, I agree with you, these kind of long form interviews are a lot better format for working through things. And also, look, if whatever people think of Coinbase, firstly, congratulations, you've built a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, that must come with a lot of pressure, must have been a lot of hard work. One of the things I noticed in preparation, like I put out, actually, can I tell you something funny? Yeah. You know, I put out the, the banner of the interview. Sorry, the banner on what? Of the interview. Like, I, I oh, let yeah. people know oh, who's coming. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, so I spelt your name wrong in it, and nobody noticed. <laughs> okay. I, know I noticed. <laughs> I felt terrible, but but what I noticed, there was a lot, a lot of feedback, a lot of questions, and then I went through your Twitter, and almost every time you tweet, it's just full of negative responses. And, and I guess one of the starting points is, I wanted to ask you, does that get to you? Um. Yes, it does get to me, although I think every year it gets to me a little bit less. So, And, and I don't think this is unique to me. I, I, I probably get more than the average person, but the, if you look at almost every account on Twitter, it has all kinds of kind of negativity happening. But I think that's just an issue that Twitter is trying to work through and make sure that it doesn't become like a bullying platform, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, Reddit, for instance, the replies have upvotes. So I, and Hacker News and Stack Overflow and things like that. So the comment threads can hopefully be sorted by some kind of wisdom of the crowds, but that's not true on, on Twitter today. So I try not to get too bent out of shape about the comments. I will say, you know, a couple of interesting anecdotes about that. Like one is that um, nobody really told me when you, when I went out to start a company, they're like, you know, a lot of people are going to be hate you for it or be irritated at you or something like that. And I remember that always came as a surprise. And this is kind of like the beauty of a company, but it's also has this negative side effect, which is that you know, there is a decision maker, whether it's me or, or somebody down in the organization. And so things get resolved. Like if 50% of pe people think it should go one way, 50% should go the other way, someone in the company will make a decision and it'll move forward. And so sometimes your job as CEO is like, well, who do, who do I want to disappoint, you know, the least today? But in other forums, like in our, in our government or something, there's checks and balances and different three-party three system, right? So if there's massive disagreement, it's actually in gridlock just indefinitely. And that's kind of a feature because you don't want to have, you know, a dictator take over the country or something. But in a company, there's, there's multiple companies competing. And so it actually you do have forward progress, even if people don't agree. So it's kind of if, if you're not having some people disagree with your decisions, you're actually not doing the job as CEO. And that was kind of a difficult thing for me to process over time was like, OK, that's just the world I live in. Like some people are going to be unhappy with me and the decisions that I make. I'll tell you one other funny story, which is like. Uh, you know, so Coinbase, we all, obviously we, we, we have a lot of connections into the banking system and we try to make it easier for people to get fiat currency into crypto. And we also have a lot of connections into the crypto ecosystem. We go talk with all the um, asset issuers and everything. 
And I remember there was one um, early Bitcoin meetup that I went to. And during the day I had, I put on like, not, not a suit and tie, but just like I dressed up a little bit to kind of go to this bank meeting because we were trying to, you know, get our account limits raised or something. So they would let us more people buy crypto. And I remember at the meeting with the banks, they kind of gave me a hard time and they were like, well, why are you doing all this crazy crypto stuff? And is it safe? And what's your compliance program? And then I went to a Bitcoin meetup that night and I was wearing kind of the same outfit and some of the like really kind of OG, you know, crypto anarchists were <laughs> coming up to me and like, why are you dressed like a banker? You know, you even talk like a banker. And, and so I was kind of getting a little bit of shit from both of them. And I felt like, you know, that's fine. I guess we're kind of right in the middle where we need to be. If we're building this bridge between the two ecosystems, I guess I'm going to expect to get a little bit of heat from both sides. But like I said, most people, they understand what we're doing. Like if we want Bitcoin to succeed, we need to get all the fiat money in the world to move over into Bitcoin. And that's going to require us to have some companies like Coinbase. Yeah, so we'll start digging into a lot of that. And, you know, this is a Bitcoin show. You know, this is primarily a Bitcoin show. I don't really talk about altcoins, but I don't really feel a need to to even address the altcoin v. Bitcoin thing. It doesn't bother me too much. That's not, you know, my sponsor has altcoins. I'm just not interested in my, too much myself. But so that's not really an area I'm, I'm really going to go into. But I definitely think we'll cover a lot of, a lot of the regulatory stuff. But I've got a few like leading questions as well I want to get into. So you obviously recognize there's this gap between yourselves and the kind of influential Bitcoiners and over some of the decisions maybe you've made, maybe that's misunderstanding, but do you have a desire to bridge that gap? Do you have a desire to kind of rebuild those relationships and have a closer relationship with some of the more influential Bitcoiners? Well, let's see. I mean, my general philosophy in life is like just – Yes, be kind to everybody and try to see what you can learn from them, like even if you disagree, right? So I would say as a general rule, yes, I'm interested in having positive relationships with everybody. Of course, you know, the job is busy, right? So there's a finite amount of time uh-huh. every day and I gotta think about how to allocate that. So if I if I feel like a conversation is, you know, not moving forward or something, I might try to have somebody on the team go do that. We have a whole team, by the way, who does nothing but interface with um, the community out there. And so I try to think about how to balance, where can I add the most value? And I, I want to always kind of make those trade-offs appropriately. Yeah. What is your day like? Like, what is a normal Brian Armstrong day like? Yeah. Well, so over the years, I've tried to change the things that I'm focused on. You know, in the early days of Coinbase, I was building the actual product itself. I was writing code. And then, you know, it evolved over time. Okay, let me think about how to run a leadership team or even, what you know, hire a leadership team. And I'd say the three things that I focus on now, um, number one is hiring in top talent. So if there's executives that we need to get hired or board members, I try to focus on that. The second one is around product strategy. So I love product. I I think about that a lot. And and there's usually like five or six things in any given quarter that I care a lot about. And I want to attend those product meetings and try to help shape uh, where they're going. And then the third one is I try to just think about creating a great culture at the company and um, being kind of a, a voice or a direction about how we're all going to act, who, who, how are we going to hire people, things like that. So I kind of break up my week. Like on Mondays, we have our executive meeting. We, we usually do some deep dive discussions into like difficult decisions we need to make. You know, Tuesday and um, Wednesday, I'll often like interview candidates, try to recruit candidates. Thursday, I'll do a bunch of product meetings. Uh, we also do a weekly Q&A in front of the whole company. So we try to answer any questions that people uh, have submitted. And, you know, Friday, I'll probably 
do a mix of things like try to learn, try to read, try to interview a few more candidates, things like that. So interface with the board, stuff like that. So those are all how my, my week typically gets divided up. And then, you know, it's a full-time job. So there's usually some stuff on the weekend too, a few calls here and there. Yeah. What's it like been doing all this during this kind of weird COVID lockdown period? How yeah. have you guys adapted to that? Yeah. So I always like to, what is the silver lining in any kind of difficult situation? I always try to think about that. And with COVID, obviously, really difficult situation for the world. But for us, I, I realized, okay, if we're forced to all go do this experiment where we work from home, we work, we work remotely, how can we turn that into an advantage? And so what I did was I, I wrote up some of my thinking on that and published it. And we talked about Coinbase as a remote first company. And what that means is that even if some of us are eventually able to return to the offices, and of course, you're going to have to be socially distanced in the office. So our offices probably will only be able to get 40, 50 percent capacity um, anyway. But once we have a few people back in the office, we all need to keep operating as if we're remote so that there's no advantage to being in the office or out of the office. And I think what it's going to do is actually be a huge advantage for us because we're able to hire now people from many different areas. Um, you no longer have to be within commuting distance of one of our offices in the world. We can get people all over the world. And there's some drawbacks, too. I mean, it's a little bit more difficult to get that spontaneous creativity um, that happens when you walk by someone at the lunch table or keeping everybody aligned towards, like, what is the mission? What are, what are our goals this quarter? You know, you have to really invest in that stuff. And just the relationship building, too, like the friendships that happen at work. We're working on how to, ways to recreate that in a remote-first environment. So I don't mean to say that it's all better, but I think on net, it's going to be actually be a big advantage for us. It feels like it's going to be a big shift change for San Francisco itself as a tech hub. Yeah, I would agree. I've, I've already seen some reports in the changes in the geography of the city, the change in rents, the change in property prices. It feels like it, whilst uh, the innovation has led in Silicon Valley, it feels like it will also be the first place to really push this kind of remote working and huge, a huge change for the city, right? Yeah, I think that's right. It's the rents were getting a little crazy in, in SF and there wasn't more housing being built. And so it was getting more and more difficult for people to kind of earn a living wage and actually live within commuting distance of offices in major, major cities in general. But SF was probably the worst in the U.S. in that regard. So I think you're right. A lot of the employees we've talked to, um, they're thinking about moving out more permanently, either to more rural areas or just other lower cost cities. So I think it'll be sort of an evening out, like probably rents and, and wages in really the most dense metro areas will kind of come down a bit and the rest of the areas will come up a bit. So it'll be interesting. All right, man. Well, listen, let's get into the Bitcoin stuff. And I want to do a bit of history with you because I haven't heard it myself. You know, I've got to know other people very well, uh, Charlie Lee especially. I was hanging out with, with him in Hong Kong and he was telling me about all the early meetups and such. But it'd, it'd be great to hear from, from you actually because it was only recently I found out actually that you worked at Airbnb, right? Yeah, that's right. Were you were you a coder? Yeah, I was a software engineer there. Do you, do you still write production code? <laughs> Not at Coinbase. No, I haven't written any production code in a while. But once in a while, we do a hackathon, and I try to see if I can still code something. So, c can you tell me about that journey then from Airbnb to discovering Bitcoin to starting Coinbase? It'd be great to hear that from you. Yeah, sure. So, um, actually the, the story happens, I'll start a little bit earlier than Airbnb, um, which is that I, I studied computer science and economics in college. And so I was always interested in the intersection of both of those. And, um, I also did something after college, which was a little bit unique, which is I went to go live in Buenos Aires, Argentina 
for a, about a year. And I did that just to kind of work on a startup idea and sort of have some adventure and try living in another country. That was the first time I had seen, you know, a hyperinflation country that had gone through that. And that was something unique to me, at least. And then I eventually did end up working at Airbnb, as you mentioned. And a couple of things there that I noticed. One was that they were trying to move money to 190 countries, both collecting payments from customers and paying out uh, payments to the hosts, the people listing their homes on Airbnb. And it was a massive headache. And we were working on a lot of those issues at, at Airbnb while I was there. Some of the issues we ran into, right, was fraud issues. So people were putting in all kinds of like stolen payments, very high fees and slow payments globally. So we were trying to think about, I remember one time we were trying to think about uh, this, integrate with this payment provider in Uruguay. And we read all their documentation and it was like, we could not figure out if we put $100 into this thing, how much money was going to come out the other side for the host who had listed their home. And we called them on the phone. We realized they didn't know either. It, you know, the rates were crazy high, like exchange rates. They might have been stealing from us, like who knows. And we eventually just had to send some money through and ask somebody on the other side, like how much money showed up? Because the company doing the payment transfers itself couldn't even tell us. So I had this like visceral sense that the global financial system is actually a patchwork quilt of these like local proprietary systems. And it's a huge barrier to innovation that's happening. You know, companies like only the biggest companies like Airbnb and Uber at great expense were able to kind of invest in expanding country by country by country. And of course, the easiest countries to expand into from a financial services point of view are the most developed countries. Right. So the countries that maybe need this kind of income and economic development the most are the last on the list to integrate because, you know, it's very difficult to find any legal way to integrate with a local payment system in Zimbabwe, for instance. So from that lens. You know, I then read the Bitcoin white paper. This was in, um, I think, December of 2010. And um, I was just at home for Christmas, or might have been Thanksgiving, I think, uh, at my parents' house in the Bay Area in San Jose. And I just uh, read the Bitcoin white paper. I saw it on Hacker News. And I remember reading it and thinking, this might be the most important thing I've read in like five years. You know, mm -hmm. and I didn't fully understand it the first time I read it, but I had a, I was like, this sounds kind of like the Internet. And, you know, the Internet, I always felt like was this huge deal where I wish I had been born maybe, you know, five or 10 years earlier. So I could have kind of tried to create one of the early Internet companies or something. And I was like, whoa, maybe this is like the next Internet that's going to happen. So over the coming months, I reread the paper a couple times, tried to wrap my head around it. I was like, you know, how, what are all the ways that this could not work or how, that it could fail? And eventually I started going to some of the early Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco as well. And that was like a really unique experience. This, this is all while I was at Airbnb. This was, um, you know, Trade Hill, if you remember them. And they had mm -hmm. they were hosting some of the early Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco in the Mission District. And it was a really funny kind of motley crew of people. You know, some of the people there were like these kind of computer science PhD people. And some of them were like, just completely crazy people too who <laughs> were there. And um, sometimes you couldn't really tell the difference. And in, in hindsight, I, I reflect back on it. It reminds me of the, the homebrew computer club. If you look at like the early days of, of um, Apple and like kind of the people working on PCs and they all looked kind of shaggy, you know? <laughs> so it was a little bit of that crew. And I remember thinking, this is kind of a, this is kind of a weird crew, you know, like, do I really want to be the Bitcoin person if I'm going to start to build something in this space? Because I talked to a lot of my friends about it at that time, and they were all like, 
I don't really get it. Like, what is this Bitcoin thing that you're getting into? It seems kind of scammy. And so my friends didn't understand it. And I, I had a lot of self-doubt about it at that time, actually, because I was like, I think I want to create maybe something in this space to try to help this thing grow and like just to play around with the technology. But all my friends think it's kind of silly. So I started working on a prototype basically nights and weekends just on my laptop. And I I was uh, thinking my, my whole mental model at that time was, you know, um, SMTP is the protocol that powers email, but it, most people don't want to run their own email server. They want to, they want to use Gmail or something like that for the security and the backups and the mobile device, the cloud storage and everything. And same thing with Git. I was like, Git was a really cool decentralized protocol, but it, people wanted you know, GitHub to make it easier to use and it was hosted and everything. So I was like, all right, well, if Bitcoin is this new protocol, I'm gonna make the hosted, the Gmail or the GitHub of this new protocol. And you know, I eventually called it Coinbase. It had some working titles at that time. And um, I remember going to those early Bitcoin meetups and some of the people, they, they, I told them, I was like, yeah, I'm working on like this hosted Bitcoin wallet, tries to make it easier to use and stuff. And they were like, why would you make a hosted Bitcoin wallet? It's just going to get hacked. Like everybody, <laughs> you know, everybody is trying to hack into these things. And I was like, that's true, you know, but I think there's going to have to be some company that gets built in this space because otherwise, like the average person is not going to be able to use Bitcoin if they have to run it locally on their device. And so I was sort of almost trying to talk myself out of it. Like, man, if I get like really into this thing, this could just be all consuming. But a very like a stroke of luck happened, which is that um, and I, I was kind of afraid to quit my job, too, by the way. I was like, Airbnb is doing really well. Do I really want to do this? I'm not sure. And what I did was I, I applied to Y Combinator, uh, which is a startup incubator. And the team there and Paul Graham were the first people who wrote me a check for 150K and they're like, okay, maybe you're not crazy. This is like kind of a cool idea. And I really looked up to them. And so if they thought I was not crazy, um, that's what kind of gave me the confidence to quit my job and try to build something full time. So that's a little bit of the origin story. Wow. Okay. What, what was it like doing Y Combinator? Um, I'm a big fan of Y Combinator. I, I think it was, it was a really great experience. Um, so it's a three month in program. It's pretty short. It's pretty intense. And you basically just get a bunch of mentors and a bunch of other entrepreneurs at the same time. And they, you just work, 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 and you build up mm -hmm. to demo day, which is where they introduce you to a bunch of investors. And it's a very selective program. I think maybe only 1% of people are accepted or something like that. By the way, I didn't mention, I actually applied to Y Combinator a couple of times before I got accepted. Okay. And then, so at, at demo day, I then had, um, in that three month period, I basically had I'd quit Airbnb. I was coding full time on this thing. And I submitted a prototype, I think, just to Reddit and got like, you know, 100 people to come sign up. And that was the very early, uh, the very early beginnings of Coinbase. At demo day, I, I then gave a pitch and I went around and just tried to collect as many interests as I could to these investors. And I remember a lot of them were really skeptical. Like we, Coinbase was not one of the hot companies at Demo Day, even though we ended up being probably, along with Instacart, one of the most valuable companies out of that batch, out of the hundred or so that were in there. But at, the, at Demo Day, not that many investors kind of were, in, were interested in it. And I was trying to raise a million dollars after that because I wanted to go hire some people and really build up a team. And I was barely able to get 600K. So I, I raised less than the goal that I had but I just decided to go back to work. And that's kind of where I eventually met Fred Ursum, who ended up co-founding Coinbase with me. You know, Coinbase probably would not exist without Fred Ursum. He, he was an amazing compliment and just brought like such 
energy and force and enthusiasm. And we eventually got a little bit of a team together and uh, figured out the killer feature, which was people actually want to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, not just have a hosted wallet. And um, that was kind of an interesting moment as well. It's a real battle that Bitcoin companies have and still have now. I mean, it's every, every founder I've spoken to has talked about all the difficulties and they're quite unique as well. Uh, I mean, firstly, security, you have the honeypot that people want to attack. Uh, I've spoken to many exchange owners about you know, the challenges of constantly defending yourself of the, all different types of attacks. Um, and when we saw Twitter attacked recently, you have difficulties with banking, difficulties with fundraising, convincing people that Bitcoin is something, difficulties with regulations, with scaling. There's so many challenges. Is this all tech companies or do you think this Bitcoin world is just even even harder, just like it's a much harder beast to crack? Mm. Well, I mean, look, there's no startup out there that I've heard of that's easy or that was easy to start. I think there's kind of um, this narrative that people apply when they, they see something that's just really starting to work and they don't see the five or 10 years of failure that went that preceded that, right? There's almost no company that I'm aware of, like, you know, the Airbnb story, th those guys were crazy to have continued working on that. They were like in tons of credit card debt, every setback you can imagine, the thing was not working. They were like three years into it and broke and like they should have given up and they didn't and it eventually worked, right? Pretty much every startup, if you look at it, there's some kind of heroic feat slash stroke of good luck that manages to make it work. And I think crypto companies are no exception. That's that's true. I would say that was true for us as well at Coinbase. I mean, uh, we had a stroke of good luck in the sense that the timing was right. You know, we had started working on it at, and then we had a, we rode a couple of those waves when things really wanted, got crazy and people wanted a place to buy it. They, we were it. But there was also some moments that they could have gone the other way. You know, I, I like I look back in like the very early days of Coinbase. There was a couple coin flips where if it had gone the other way, like maybe we wouldn't exist um, now. So and some of those can, were can you dig into any of those. <laughs> well, some of them were either fundraising events, right? That was like, if we hadn't gotten that one person to say yes, we probably would have not been able to hire and we would have shut down. You know, some of them were bank partners that we landed that were keeping kind of helping keep that revenue coming in. There was some definitely security is a huge one, right? Like the early days of Coinbase, there was all kinds of people attacking and we were a lot, a lot less probably, you know, thoughtful and, and had all the systems in place that we do today. But over time, we got more and more on kind of layers of security in place and teams and everything like that. But in those early days, I mean, yeah, we had like one of our customer support accounts got taken over and, you know, it could have been a really bad outcome, but we managed to, you know, save the day. So there were some kind of crazy moments like that, for sure. Have you have you felt a lot of pressure during it? Have there been times when it's almost got overwhelming? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I think one of the key features or one of the key skills of being an entrepreneur is actually like this kind of resilience or determination. Mm -hmm. Some people have commented to me that, um, you know, I'm like a pretty even keeled person. <laughs> so I do, I do feel the stress and I feel like highs and lows, but I think there's something weird about my personality where I'm like, I, I don't feel the highs as high as everybody else, but I also don't feel the lows as low as everybody else. So I'm able to just kind of keep going. And part of that is a cultivated mindset. I think part of it is just kind of how the way I, the way I am naturally. But yeah, there, there were some really dark days there where I remember like, you know, we, we'd have some bug on the website and thousands of customers would be angry. And then, you know, 
my head of engineering would quit and we get some lawsuit in the mail from someone trying to sue us for a million dollars and all these things happening kind of at the same time. And there'd be day, a lot of, a lot of days, I'd say like the first four years of Coinbase, you know, Fred Ersham and I were working 12 hour days, six days a week, trying to just will this thing into existence. And it often felt like, you know, if we, um, we were, we were answering customer support queries, you know, until two in the morning and trying to go home and get four hours of sleep, we'd get, woken up in the middle of the night, the website's down, you know, I, I was on pager duty for many years and there was a lot of sleep deprivation and there was a lot of just like grit to see if we could try to will this thing into existence. But I would say over the years, it's gotten a little easier. Um, there's always some new thing that comes in like side, side swipes you, but um, so there's never, there's always something new to learn as a CEO, but yeah, there's been a lot of dark days. Um, and you also, I think one of the key things was securing the, the banking agreement with Silicon Valley Bank. That seemed to be a pivotal kind of moment for the company because I know a lot of companies struggled with banking. Um, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of people who run exchanges have talked about that. Um, yeah, I spoke to uh, Jed very early on about what, what he was doing, where he was having to use his own private bank account yeah. uh, with Mt. Gox. You seem to almost have like a, a two-year monopoly on, on that relationship with that bank. How helpful was that and how did that all come about? Yeah. So I think that was really important for Coinbase's success. You're right. There was a period there where I think we were the only kind of viable way to probably buy cryptocurrency in the U.S. And we gained a lot of traction during that time. And, you know, the way that that came about is that once we realized people wanted to actually buy crypto on the site, I realized we needed to get a partnership with a bank so people could add their bank account or eventually credit cards and debit cards and things. And so actually Y Combinator made an intro to Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. And we went and found, uh, we talked with them. And I remember calling them up and saying, hey, I'd love to get like kind of an ACH access, which is the banking rails in the US. And, and they said, okay, well, you know, what's your AML policy? And um, I was kind of like Googling, you know, live on the call, like, what is an AML policy? <laughs> um, and I was like kind of skimming the Wikipedia article, right? And so I realized at a certain point, I was like, you know, we need to get some of these systems and controls in place that's the only way we're going to get these features live and so we started to we went out and hired um a chief compliance officer you know we we spoke with a couple law firms that kind of helped us think about money transmission licenses and all these kind of things and you're always in this weird place as a startup right because you you're not going to have time and, and resources to go build the systems to the way that a large company would if you took, you know, if we had waited to get all 50 money transmitter licenses or whatever, it would have been three years and millions of dollars, right? And we had only raised mm-hmm. 300K. So we needed to get started with something. And we were able to kind of get some legal opinion letters written, things like that, and enough of a um, control environment in place that the bank felt comfortable starting us with something, right? And we then went through some growth spurts, um, which were honestly like very uncomfortable for them. I think I remember we'd get these calls from the bank and they'd be like, you're, you have $500,000 in the bank account and you did $500,000 in volume yesterday of Bitcoin buys. So if you have like one mistake one day and somehow you can't collect the money, you're, you're insolvent as a company. And we were like, yes, that's true. <laughs> and their response was, you need to get some more money in this bank account or we're going to turn off your access in 30 days. You know, that, those kind of conversations. And so you know, Fred, Fred, Fred and I went at that point, we were like, all right, let's go raise a series A. And we went out there and it was a good story to tell investors like, hey, we're growing so fast, like we need capital or the bank's going to turn off our account. 
And we were able to get that initial Series A raise with $5 million. And there were many moments like that where we, we had a lot of working capital challenges of like just trying to keep the Bitcoin buys on during that time. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, working with Silicon Valley Bank did help us get off the ground. And it put a lot of strain on their systems, too. I think they were getting a lot of people internally saying, you know, what the hell is this Bitcoin company that's growing like a weed? And like, do we even want to be involved in this? What are the compliance risks? And I know when their auditors were coming to audit their bank, they were kind of leaning on them like, what the hell is this client you have? And so ultimately, we had to get a move to other banks and eventually work with some of the biggest banks out there in the world. But that took, you know, seven years of like trying to build a team and the relationships and the rigor around these systems that um, would get those bank partners comfortable. And am I right? You've raised about half a billion in total now. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So one of the first questions I had written down for you, actually, I think it might have been the first one I wrote down is what kind of pressure does that come with? Because I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of people will look at the business and... Yeah, for example, one of the criticisms is why list altcoins. And as I said, it doesn't bother me too much. Look, I'm not a fan of them, but I understand there's that competitive pressure. Your customers want them. It is a revenue stream. I get it. And and perhaps that's one of the pressures that comes with, you know, raising you know, half a billion dollars in that you, you know, you have a fiduciary duty to to grow your company, right? So, but for you personally, what what kind of pressures come with raising that kind of money? Cuz I've got no idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, look, I think sometimes people maybe envision it as, um, you know, you have this board and once you take their money, they're going to pressure you. And I I think there are companies where that's true because there are a lot of examples of VCs that have come into companies and just, you know, exited founders or like leaned really hard on them. Um, One thing we've been fortunate at Coinbase is that we, you know, Frederick and I were able to maintain a lot of control over the company, um, founder control. And so, there was never a dynamic that we felt where we were like being pressured by the board. And I, I don't think, you know, they, the kind of people we brought onto the board, they wouldn't have done that anyway. So it wasn't like they were leaning on us, like you better do this or you're out or anything like that. But at the same time, um, you know, when you raise venture capital, you're doing it because you're trying to grow a big company. And Fred Erstman and I wanted to grow a big company, right? That was kind of what we set out to do. So, you know, I believe that all the decisions to add new coins, you know, really came from us. I don't recall anybody on the board ever coming to us and saying, hey, you have to do this or like, what are you guys okay. thinking? We just wanted to build, we just wanted to provide what our customers wanted and what they were asking for. And, um, you know, that's mainly how it's done. So I would say if you want to, if somebody wants to build more of like a lifestyle business um, that's not like under some pressure to eventually get big, venture capital may not be the right thing. But in our case, we wanted to build a big company and we wanted to grow faster and we wanted to throw a fuel on the fire. So, yeah. But does it come with any other pressures? Like, do you feel a pressure of having to, like, achieve some some kind of goal or target because you've raised so much money? Um, let's see. I mean, there is some pressure in the sense that people start to watch your valuation, right? And the employee, yeah. the employees that you have joining the company as well, they're they're owners in the business. They're getting options with a strike price, right? And so. They want to know if I join and the strike price is this, you know, what is it going to be in two years? What is it going to be in four years when these options vest? So I think there's some pressure from that point of view. Also, yeah, I mean, I I, I do feel like some obligation as like a steward of people's capital, right? Like if you're going to raise that, that fiduciary duty, if you're going to raise money from other people, they're doing that because you have kind of a mutual agreement that 
Mm -hmm. We're going to try to make this thing big and, and not only return the money to you, but um, hopefully grow something much bigger beyond that. So if you don't have a goal of like trying to become a bigger company, you probably shouldn't raise money from from VCs like that's that just wouldn't be in integrity, I don't think. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting you say like a steward and obli the obligations that come with that, because you're building a business in this kind of weird world where it's you're also building on top of this weird new decentralized money and specifically towards Bitcoin, people are very passionate about it. And do you feel, do you feel like you're a steward of Bitcoin? Do you feel obligations toward Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, this, look, we've, I've built this company off of this protocol, which I didn't mm -hmm. invent, right? Satoshi Nakamoto, yeah. whoever that is, or a group of people, they are the ones, you know, who kind of created this amazing innovation in the world. I think I think I'm helping by giving more people access to it, but I definitely don't feel like we're shaping Bitcoin or something like that. Like we kind of more like in service to the the customers and the community of people who want to use it. So I and I think it's obviously it's for us it's broader too. It's it's a cryptocurrency thing. It's we're trying to be agnostic since our customers want all kinds of different things. But yeah, we definitely have some sense of responsibility there. Yeah, because one of the areas I did want to get into with you is talking about what happened with S2X. Because mm -hmm. I think that's an example of a scenario where even though you didn't build it, you can become influential about the direction it goes. And, and just to uh, for transparency, S2X came around not too long after I really got into Bitcoin. Whilst I discovered it in 2013, I wasn't really using it. And I didn't probably pay attention to really end of 16, start of 17. When I was first getting into it, and I heard all the arguments. To me, you know, full transparency, I was like, well, bigger blocks make sense. Of course you want more transactions. Why wouldn't you want more transactions? I didn't fully understand decentralization. And and I think in time what happened is I've only really become aware that that personally I now disagree with with scaling, the, the, the idea about scaling Bitcoin to two megabyte during that time. In hindsight, I can't I can't ever claim at the time like, I was all knowing because I wasn't, but I'd be interesting to hear from your perspective what that experience was like. Because you know, you obviously did support uh, S2X, you also and you supported Bitcoin Classic before that. You know, people call them contentious forks, but you also sat there the other side having this pressure of trying to build a business. So it would be interesting to for you to tell me what happened then and how that went down for you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of history there. And I, by the way, I'd be curious to hear your point of view, too, how you've um, evolved on that over time. Yeah. Let's see. So, oh, man, a lot of history there. I think the general way I looked at it was I, you know, everything we were doing at that time was Bitcoin. And I felt like Bitcoin is like TCP IP for the Internet. It's it's the one that everybody's building on. There's a lot of little other side projects, but like we need to make sure that we keep growing this thing because that's where all the current mindshare is and everybody, in the, you know, the people who all heard of something, they were like, it's Bitcoin. That was like the brand recognition. And so my thought was, well, if we want this thing to not just be store of value, but also medium of exchange, we're going to have to think about scalability and then not just scalability. We're going to have to think about any of these other features that might come along. Maybe we can have a protocol that evolves, right? So like if there's better privacy features or, you know, smart contract stuff or whatever that comes along, we should probably keep trying to upgrade this protocol so that it keeps growing and, and get, continues to have the most mindshare. Now, there's a very valid argument on the other side of that, which is twofold, you know, in my mind. One is there is a trade-off in terms of decentralization, right? Like if you if you keep growing the, the blockchain and the number of transactions per second, 
um, that are being stored there, well, it's harder and harder for individuals to kind of run a full node. And then the other thing is that, you know, it's dangerous to evolve a protocol, right? Like if, mm. you, if you mess up and you don't understand the game theory or whatever, these things are really complicated. You could kind of put the whole thing at risk. So there was a lot of debate in the community at that time. And my, my view going into it was this, that's not uncommon. There's debate in every community about what the right path is to go forward, including the United States or a company or, you know, any kind of organization, certainly open source projects that have come before that, like, Git or, you know, the HTTP protocol or whatever kind of example you want to come up with, there's always debate. But I always felt like, you know, we're a bunch of reasonable people and there can be some kind of consensus that happens and we can make reasonable, you know, improvements to the protocol over time that are done in a really safe way. What I guess happened at a certain point was I felt like the, the communities were becoming kind of so divided that I, I realized, wow, there might not actually be a path for us to move forward together as one group. And I was really trying to avoid that happening because I felt like if the community, the, the whole crypto community, which was most like 90, 95% Bitcoin at that time, if it started to fracture at this early stage, it could set back the whole industry. And so I was trying to create unity. And so, it, it, you know, it might sound silly in hindsight, but my my thing with S, S2X or Segwit2X was let's just give everybody what they want. If you want Segwit, you want larger blocks, let's just you know, give everybody what they want so we can stay together as one community and keep building this thing. But I guess that was perceived as hostile too. And so, you know, there really wasn't much thought that went into it other than that, to be honest with you. There was a bunch of people in the community kind of talking. I'd get random phone calls. I'd get random text messages and stuff. I was like, can everybody just get what they want and we can all move forward? Like, that sounds good, but it didn't work out that way. So in hindsight, you know, you never really know. Um, we don't get to run the experiment twice, right? Like, I think the positive story mm. to tell about it is that well, Bitcoin has not, um, you know, we haven't taken any unnecessary risks with it. And we've ensured that it is going to probably survive the test of time, right? As like the gold standard. And we may find other solutions for scalability with layer two or whatever. The other, I guess the other way to look at it is what would have happened if we had found a way to kind of safely scale it? You know, maybe we wouldn't have had a need for some of these other um, chains that have come up and sort of divided focus. Uh, I do think it's it has harmed the usability of cryptocurrency a little bit that, even when people come to Coinbase, right, and there's so many different coins or they got to think about, well, if I want to use DeFi, I got to like find this other protocol and learn about it. And so it's it's kind of increased the learning curve, I would say, of, for new people to get into cryptocurrency. And one of my big beliefs is that we need to actually make it dramatically easier to use before it'll get to a billion people. Right. And I really want it to get to a billion people. It's, it's kind of like the Internet. Like if you needed to understand IP addresses and like DNS, to even use the Internet probably not that many people would have. They needed to get it so simple where it's just like click a link on a web browser. So those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, I agree with you on the usability. Um, it's funny, actually, though, I did I did hear a good counter argument on if you make it too easy for people, you might lead people to not taking enough responsibility for their own personal security because you are, you know, self-sovereign. But I, I do generally agree with mm -hmm. the usability side of things. I'm not sure, though, that you know, not being able to do certain things on Bitcoin because people want scalability is the reason these other coins have existed. I I think the game theory or the incentives, sorry, were there for people just to create other cryptocurrencies, the chance to, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money by creating these cryptocurrencies. Um, just sticking with S2X for a bit, though, and I'll tell you where my view changed. So my view changed at the time, the, I think it was the New York Agreement happened, and the developers didn't turn up and I heard about this and that's why I just dug a bit deeper and why are the developers 
not wanting to be part of this. And then what happened, I think, is is post the uh, fork when it turned out that there was a bug in Garzit's code. I started to realize actually a lot of risks here. And that's when I spent a bit more time. Look, I'm people know I'm not very technical, Brian. I'm, I'm the least technical person. But I spent a lot of time looking at hard forks. And I I realized how how dangerous they can be for Bitcoin and how risky. And I, I'd be interested to know on your view on hard forks now. And add to that a second question. Like, in hindsight, do you think the way it went down is good in that we stayed at one megabyte and we didn't fork off? Or do you think... Would you still prefer it would have happened? Hmm. Well, let's see. So I do think hard forks are pretty risky. Like I, that's actually one thing I will say I was totally wrong on. I, I put out this um, post way back, probably 2014 or something, where I actually believed at that time that if there was a fork of a chain, it would actually eventually consolidate down to one because the incentives of you know the hashing power and everything like that. And I I was completely wrong on that. You know, like Bitcoin Cash and you know, Ethereum Classic and all these things that's forked off, like they've continued to persist, which I would, I totally did not predict. So to your question about whether it's good the way it ended up um, with this kind of faction forking off, you know, I really don't know, like, because we never get to run the experiment twice. Like there's a, there's a version of history where we had tried to do Segwit2x and maybe other changes in the future. And it had actually put the whole thing at risk and the thing imploded because there was a bug in the code, right? And crypto just kind of dead ended, you know, and or maybe it had to be rebooted in some next generation or something. Mm-hmm. That would have been a huge setback. And maybe we avoided that fate. Right. But maybe we also avoided um, an outcome where people had started to use um, Bitcoin earlier on for more things or like, you know, for more as a medium of exchange or something like that. It's it's really hard to say. Yeah. I, I, see, I, I, the thing like the kind of conclusion I came to is that. I don't think Bitcoin on the base chain will ever be a medium of exchange unless it's big ticket items. Yeah. I kind of came to that de- conclusion. And one of the things I've always struggled with with Ethereum is when people talk about decentralization, I say directionally it's becoming more centralized. So it doesn't matter if it is decentralized, directionally it's becoming more centralized. Whereas with Bitcoin, it seems to be directionally always focused on increasing decentralization on every aspect as much as possible. So I'm always a, I've always been a fan of that, but I guess do, do you have any regrets with it? I mean, kind of like Vences came out and said he he was wrong. You seem to be kind of still on the fence. You know, maybe we don't really know. But do you have any regrets through that process? Because a lot of people have hung their hat on standing by their original choices and and taking a lot of criticism for it. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of my regrets about it is that. I was probably more strident than I should have been. So I, at that time, at that point, I felt like, hey, I have an opinion on this. I really got to make it known. You know, I did a trip to China. We met with a number of the miners there. Um, I wrote some blog posts. And I think, look, I, I think just in general, I wish I'd probably had a little bit more humility about it and just said, hmm. look, this is complicated stuff. I don't actually know, right? Like maybe I have, I have a thought and I want to share that with people, but I, sh- I probably should have been a little less uh, strident and probably just a little nicer to people too. I think I, I probably came off cross as like a little bit arrogant or just like hubris. And like, I was, I felt like I was so busy trying to keep the company alive. I didn't have a lot of time to go engage with people. And so I was probably came across as kind of a jerk to people. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it definitely, it, it's, it's for many years and still to this day, people have this negative view of 
you know, oh, Brian hates Bitcoin or something like that, um, which doesn't make sense because I've committed like the last eight years of my life to it, basically. But, you know, I think that's that's something I regret. Yeah. Do you think if it came up again, if there was another fight to scale it to two megabytes, do you think you would be supportive of that? Or do you think now you, you think it's good where it is? I think that ship has sailed. You know, it, it's one of those things about human nature that's just like tribalism, I think is very inherently ingrained in human nature. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, I, I don't, I don't have that. I don't want to go fight that fight. Like I'm not even sure it's the right thing. And it just feels like it's a perilous thing. You know, it reminds me a little bit of that. Um, you ever see that Monty Python film, like Life of Brian, where there's like, <laughs> are you are you in the people in front of you, Judea or the Judea's people? Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like we're all, we all should basically, we want the same thing. We all want more freedom in the world. Like, you know, we want like sound money. We want like an open financial system. We want this technology to unlock a bunch of innovation. So my whole thing is like, I don't know, how can we all trying to help make that happen together. And look, I'm, I'm the first one to admit, like I probably could have been more inclusive, collaborative, like with a bunch of people out there. So that's, that's my fault. Um, but hopefully we can kind of work together as an industry just to make progress. Yeah. That's an, in, another interesting point you make with regards to we're, we all want the same thing. Cause I actually think it's kind of interesting. There's like a spectrum of things that people want with Bitcoin. So some people want, let's say a uh, fast and frictionless payments and and an adoption kind of like a, a better paypal as, as people say and there's but other people i think sometimes say they want a better world which is you know more uplifting one less oppressive one the technologies that can help people and i think sometimes there is a conflict between those so for example maybe you have to work a little bit more with the regulators or perhaps you do some things which are considered anti-privacy which you may say supports adoption and so supports growth, but it comes at the risk of you know, reducing freedoms. Do, do you understand the, the contradiction I'm, I'm pointing towards? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some challenges around that. Um, like if you want to get you know easy payment methods hooked into crypto, well, at least on those platforms, you're probably going to have to give up some privacy if those things are going to follow the law and stick around, right? So I, I see some trade-offs around that. I think for me, um, the way I, way I think about this is that cryptocurrency is going to evolve over time, right? It might be that the early the early things that people wanted to do was just buy a little bit of Bitcoin because they wanted to hold on to it, hope it would go up. And to me, that's great to get an initial group of people into this system. But to me, the long-term potential is much bigger than that, right? Like, I actually want to see an entire economy come up around cryptocurrency. Like, we call it the crypto economy internally. Um, but what that means is that now that more and more people actually hold a little bit of cryptocurrency, maybe we can opt into more of like crypto to crypto world instead of crypto to fiat world, where a lot of those legacy issues are still um, on the table. So, you know, I, I, one way we think about this is that today the most common kind of action people take in, in the crypto economy is trade. But that's mm-hmm. not going to be true for long. And we're actually seeing a lot of adoption of other actions in, in the crypto economy, like People are doing borrow lend. They're doing spending with merchants, right? They're doing earning. Um, they're doing, you know, staking. They're doing voting. They're doing peer-to-peer payments, remittance, right? So, I think it's this idea where um, initially cryptocurrency was kind of a solo activity. Like, even if none of your friends knew about crypto, or whatever, you could go trade some and hold it in your personal account. But now that we've gotten enough people who have cryptocurrency, we're starting to see transactions happen, like a real network effect, and that's how we're eventually going to have like a more free world. I'm really big on this idea of economic freedom, right? 
which is a concept you can kind of study about our property rights in forest. Is there free trade? Can people join the companies they want to join? Can they have a stable currency? All those things. And so I, I think the ultimate potential of cryptocurrency is we're actually going to you know, create or inject economic freedom into a bunch of countries around the world and build a new alternative economy that's more free and fair and efficient. So that's where I want to get it to go. And that is going to require at least some way for us to do medium of exchange in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff like um, smart contracts and borrowing and lending and, you know, decentralized um, exchange exchanges and things like that. So a lot of people would argue with you against providing that through altcoins, and I'm not I'm not going to dive into that today, but uh, but sticking to the Bitcoin side of things, so you, you custody close to a million Bitcoin. I think that's I think it's like nine hundred and fifty thousand Bitcoins. That firstly that must be quite stressful, <laughs> um, but um, so I think a lot of responsibility does come with that. And one actually one of the questions I want to ask you first is: There's been a lot of talk recently about sponsoring open source developers a lot of companies starting to put money in that i haven't seen anything with regards to coinbase on that is that something you're intending to do doing joining the likes you know the other companies have been committing to that because it, it is a really obviously important thing for bitcoin yeah yeah so we've tried it um this a couple times in the past and we haven't had a lot of success with it um not you know because of anything with the community just that we did we failed sort of internally we briefly launched a protocol team. We had one of our early Coinbase engineers um, kind of found that. He was working on um, some Lightning Protocol stuff and some of the clients. And we also briefly launched this open source initiative where we made some small donations. It was just a very small way to get started. Mm. But you know, ultimately, that, that founding engineer who, who was on the protocol team ended up leaving. So the team kind of uh, disbanded at that point. I think the way I think about this is it would certainly build a lot of goodwill in the community. And it's just really important for the ecosystem for us to sponsor open source development because, you know, again, we are a company that's built on these open source protocols. I, I think it would build a lot of great, uh, goodwill. Maybe maybe we should do it now. Let's agree it, Brian. <laughs> Let's sponsor a couple of developers. Yeah. Well, let me, I, I would love to make that happen. Like, let me tell you just yeah. kind of honestly behind the scenes, the kind of things I'm thinking about. So okay. one is that um, I think we're also, by the way, helping Bitcoin with a lot of the making it easier for people to buy it in a bunch of countries and, you know, um, mm -hmm. all the kind of infrastructure we're doing. And I'll tell you, there always seems to be some fire burning, right, inside the company. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, our onboarding stopped working in this country. You know, this payment provider isn't stopped working. Like, we need to make, make these financial things work. Otherwise, we're not going to be in business. So it's like, I do feel like there's always some fire burning that's like, that's almost like existential to the company. So it's hard to get enough resources together. But we did just hire this new head of engineering who I'm really hoping is going to help us, uh, you know, increase our engineering hiring. And so I think one of the tasks that he can think about over the next, you know, the rest of this year is should we actually spin up that team again and have a small team doing it? Like certainly at Google scale and things like that, they have teams who work on open SSL and, and that kind of stuff, which these kind of foundational layers of the internet, which I think is really good. And so I, I very, I'd be very surprised if we did not end up in a very similar place eventually, but, we're not Google scale yet. We're a thousand people and we seem to keep having these fires burning all the time. So that's the main challenge. But perhaps, perhaps externalize it might be a better way than a bit. I think I just saw BitMEX sponsored Jeremy Rubin. I think it's about a $50,000. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of estimate your trading fees around, look, I'm not telling you how to run your business, but say it's $100,000 a day. I think if you just sponsored two external developers, you wouldn't even have to worry about it. I think that would build a, a lot of goodwill in the community. That's a good you don't point. mind a, 
Yeah, I, th- I think if you did that, a couple, a couple of people, you'd get so many applications as well, but you wouldn't even have to worry about them. That You wouldn't have to worry about them, your own burning fires internally. And that's a really good start because we need these open source developers on Bitcoin. It is really important. The more we have, the better. And I've spoken to some of it. It is a real struggle sometimes to get funding. So I might, I, I might, uh, I might ask you about that again uh, in a few weeks and see how that's going. And that's would you mind? Awesome. Yeah, I think it's a great point. It doesn't have to be internal at Coinbase. So I'll tell you what. I'll make a note right now. I'll talk with our our new head of Eng about it, and we happy to follow up. Good. That's. I mean, I can't add any value there because I, I don't know what what the people are. Um, just just following on from that, like you know, I talk about um you as a company being intrinsically linked to, to Bitcoin. Um, we've got to get into the, there's one really diff, difficult area of this interview with some tough questions, which I think you know what, what's going to be about. So I want to talk a little bit about privacy. And um, I had Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss on, on the podcast recently. I talked to them and I, I'll just ask you the same question. Like, what is what is your personal views on privacy? Hmm. Just in general? Yeah, just in general. It's, um, it's a leading question, but yeah, in sure. general. I mean, look, I would prefer that we live in a world where everybody has way more privacy. I think it's kind of an unfortunate system that we have where, you know, there's very little financial privacy in the world, right? People, you're swiping your credit card, it, the actual number ends up in these databases all over the internet. You know, I, I think that it's kind of unethical, actually, that, uh, you know, these records can be subpoenaed from companies like companies are essentially have been like deputized as arms of law enforcement to spy on their customers. And we have these obligations in financial services to kind of report um, on all the things that are happening. And I understand the history of it. Right. It's like I think as far as I know, it kind of started with like the war on drugs and then it with terrorism, it kind of escalated and things like that. And so, look, whenever something bad happens, people have this natural response. They're like, well, we have to do something about it. How are we going to? And so the theory behind these laws, anti-money laundering laws and things, makes sense to me. It's like if it's harder to profit from crime, there will be less crime. Well, you know, the data out there doesn't necessarily indicate that it's been a success. Like there's been reports by the World Bank and others that look at those laws and, they, and they've kind of said, OK, of all the illicit activity happening in the world, what percentage of it is is captured or frozen by these AML laws? And the data that I've seen is that it's like it's about one percent or something, very maybe one to two percent. And at what cost? You know, not like enormous cost to these financial institutions, but the bigger cost is probably, you know, in the barriers to innovation that happen, right? Uh, because it just makes it that much harder for a new startup to be created and everything like that. So I'm, you know, I'm definitely kind of like a libertarian at heart. Like I believe that you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting other people and you know, if you do hurt other people, well, there's a court system to kind of help go solve that. But that's not the prevailing view in the world. So um, we certainly try to operate. We, we've tried to work proactively with regulators. And, you know, even if every law regula- regulation out there isn't perfect and has some unintended consequences, they do some good. And we, we have to follow the law to kind of stay in business. So we try to work with them. Next up, I talked to Brian more about Coinbase and Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Sportsbet. Have you checked out Sportsbet.io yet? They are the best place for online gaming. And what would the best online gaming firm do? They'd accept Bitcoin, right? Yes, Sportsbet.io accepts Bitcoin. They are also the company that put a Bitcoin logo on a Premier League football shirt. And they are a gaming team with Bitcoin in their veins. 
I visited them. I went out to Estonia. I met the team. I visited their offices. And I also met their CEO. They don't just accept Bitcoin. They actively promote it. They are a team of Bitcoiners with their sports book, live betting, casino, and virtual sports. They have every type of online gaming covered. They also have a number of promotions for any new customer signing up. So if you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Also, let's talk about Casa, the best in Bitcoin security. If you're leaving a ton of Bitcoin on an exchange because you're worried about holding it yourself, or you're worried about the risk of a single hardware wallet, then there is no better solution than Casa. With Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And Casa has a product for every Bitcoin. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, at a really great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full-service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. What do people not understand about the relationship that you have with regulators? Like, is it has it been an ongoing, constant relationship? Are they always on the phone to you? Are you always calling them? Are you, you know, are, are you essentially having to fight on behalf of Bitcoin with the regulators? How does that all work in the background? <clears throat> yeah. So from the very early days of Coinbase, you know, you mentioned, I think, one, another one of the exchanges where people were trying to run it out of their personal bank account. That, that was surprisingly common back then. The problem with that is the minute you get over a certain amount of volume, they're going to come investigate and shut down, right? So we, I realized early on, if we're going to have any chance of becoming a big company, a sustainable company, we've got to be proactive and tell them what we're doing. And we've got to be an educational resource to them. So there's this amazing thing that happens, right? Like if you, if they if they read about, hey, there's some Bitcoin company doing X, they're immediately skeptical, like especially in the early days. Now it's better. But if you show up in person and, you know, you appear relatively normal and they can tell you're a good person, like it's just like you and I doing this podcast, right? It's like it helps build the relationship. So with regulators and in business and everything, relationships matter. And so we tried to just show up a lot in the early days. We would suit up and go to these meetings, meet with the, the state money transmitter licenses, the FinCEN and like CFTC and SEC and everything. And over the years, we ended up getting a lot of those licenses. And, and so um, we still do that to this very day. We Somebody on the team at Coinbase every week is interacting with NYDFS, SEC, CFTC. We have num 50 money transmitter licenses in the US. So every quarter we get a handful of them that come audit us. And that's just the United States. We have equivalent kind of regulators in the UK with the FCA. We have in, in Singapore, the MAS. We have a bunch in Europe. So, you know, the, the regulatory burden on the company is actually pretty high. I would say about, um, I think it's like 35% or so of the company is working in some form of legal and compliance. So it's incredibly expensive. And yes, we do a lot of educational research, uh, work with them to kind of get them comfortable with how this is being used. And, and there's a ton of detail there. Have there any been any times during this kind of development of Coinbase and growth of Coinbase when you've been working with the regulators, you've ever felt like, shit, they might actually try and ban this? There's been some scary moments. I remember um, when when uh, Charlie Shrem, I think, got arrested and everything. I was like, oh my gosh, is this like a crackdown yeah. on all crypto companies? And I 
I remember calling our lawyer and I was like, what do I do if I get arrested? You know, and he's like, well, just give him my phone number and tell him you want to talk to me. <laughs> so, but that was, that was kind of early days stuff. I mean, there was fears at a certain point that, you know, Trump had tweeted about Bitcoin, right? And um, we went and met with the treasury and Mnuchin and people like that. And they're, they're, they're actually quite thoughtful um, about this. And they, they seem to believe in the, you know, as the potential for it to, um, have created some innovation in the United States and to help companies grow. So they may have other many other flaws, but I think so far in our interactions with SEC, CFTC, IRS, et cetera, they seem to be believe that this is an area of potential growth for the U.S. economy. And I do try to make it over to D.C. about once every year or two to kind of build relationships, uh, which is kind of like just one of those things in business, you know, that tends to help for the long term if we want to make sure um, Bitcoin makes it to the mainstream. And can you push back on them? Like, are there times where they're, they're pushing at you quite hard and you can push back on them? And do they listen? Um, you know, it depends on the people, right? I would say there there was one meeting I remember having with a congressman where he we went through our whole pitch about how this can be, you know, the, the issues with the traditional financial system and what this can do to improve it and everything. And he kind of said, well, you know, after we're done with Facebook, we're going to come after you. And I was like, OK, that, was, that didn't go well. But I would say that's that's the exception. Most people, you know, even if they come in with sort of a skepticism, they're like, well, this is just used for like money laundering and darknet markets and stuff, right? And we, we show them the data and we're like, actually the best data we have is that about 1% of cryptocurrency transactions are for illicit use. And here's the independent third parties who have done that research. And by the way, cash in the US, it's like three to 4% apparently is illicit use. So. Um, this is just a tool. It's like the internet or something. You know, it can be used by good people. It can be used by bad people. But most people in the world are good, and so we, they, most people are open to those kind of facts when we talk to them about that. So it's just about educating people, then. Yeah, I think just generally, you know. By the way, there's there's another thing in human nature, right? Like, which is, I think people are just afraid of new things. I, I love reading history, right? Like, if you go read about the Wright brothers or something, I always assumed that when they demonstrated the first powered flight of an airplane, everybody would have been like, wow, like what's the potential we can totally use this? Turns out that was not the case. Like for five or six years, they were trying to get people to even number one, believe that it was real. Number two, see any kind of potential in it. Like they tried to, they tried to, um, they were, they tried to sell that technology to like the U S military and like the U S government and everything. And they wrote back and like, we have no interest in flight as a military tool, you know? And so it was kind of amazing. If you study history, a lot of things are underestimated. They look like a toy when they're first created, and eventually they have this enormous potential. But for some reason, most people in the world, they're not oriented to like being excited about new things. They have some kind of a fear about it. Yeah, yeah, I accept that. I'm a bit like that myself personally. I, I didn't, I didn't understand Bitcoin when I first saw it, so it took me a few years anyway. Okay, so look, I've got a couple of your quotes here. I just want to go back to privacy. So you talked about. Uh, I've got a quote from you. Enabling convenient payment methods requires digital currency companies to comply with existing laws. We can't have one without the other. And I think it's short-sighted for privacy advocates to oppose embracing compliance as they may be the ones to stand the, the most to gain from it. So is this a reluctant acceptance that you have to work with regulators? Because if you go back to when you had that battle with the uh, was it with the IRS over the, the accounts with over 20,000 in transactions, you really fought that. Yeah. You know, you fought that in, in the courts, but it seems now more recently you have a more, like, it feels like you have more of a direct relationship with regulators. And 
it feels like you are a little bit I don't I don't know how to exactly put this but it seems like you've become more friendly with them mm. um, and I'm trying to understand is it because it's too expensive to fight is it better for you as a company like I don't ex- I don't expect you to give me the answer I expect here but do perhaps you sometimes compromise what may be best for Bitcoiners for the benefit of Coinbase? Hmm. Well, so I'd, I'd say we've always had a um, tried to reach out to regulators proactively to work with them. So that's not new. That's that was true from the earliest days of Coinbase. It's still true today. But you know, if if we get something from a regulator like a like a subpoena that we think crosses the line, and doesn't follow the law, or you know, we we're not afraid to push back on it. And by the way, it's it's very expensive for us as a company to do that. Like not not just in terms of some potential reputational risk with them, but you know, just mark the money for these these lawyers and everything is like kind of crazy for a small company. You know, that IRS situation that you mentioned, that was an example where we got kind of what I would characterize as like a dragnet subpoena, where they said, hey, we need the information on all customers over this time period. And that's not the intention behind subpoenas, the way the law is written. There needs to be some kind of reasonable um, expectation that the law has been violated. You can't just sit, go to any, you can't just go to Google and say, give me the data on all your customers. Like, so we challenged that um, with them and that was expensive. <laughs> and we did, uh, we got it dialed back from like, it would have been many, many millions of customers data that they wanted initially. And I think we got it back to like 14,000 or something or 20,000. So, you know, was that was that like five people? That's what, what I wish it had been, but we got some kind of negotiated settlement with them. So that's you how- You saw I that think. as a win. Well, it was a lot better than millions of people. Let's put it that way. But was it the outcome I wanted? No. So, you know, it depends what kind of judge you get. It depends all kinds of factors. So anyway, I think as we get to be a bigger company, we're going to have more and more tough questions and tough decisions to make like that. You know, if you look at the big tech companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, whatever, I mean, they're just in nonstop kind of like congressional testimony, like, you know, all kinds of legal efforts. And so, and not just in the US, like globally. And so in some ways it's a high quality problem to have. If you become a big enough company, you're gonna have 30, 50, 100 ongoing kind of inquiries, uh, lawsuits, um, class action stuff at all times. Like that's just the society we live in. I remember um, there was this one entrepreneur I was talking to and they were like, I was, they seemed kind of down, you know, and, and they were like, man, I'm so upset. Like this, pers- this person is suing us. And I, he, he was really kind of, it was derailing him from like kind of make, focusing on progress in the business. And um, I was like, you want to, you want to, something might make you feel better. You know, let me um, call our head of, our head of legal right now. And I was like, just out of curiosity, like how many ongoing inquiries and lawsuits do we have? And he was like about 30 or so. I was like, okay, great. So, you know, at a certain point, like this is just a cost of doing business. You have to like employ a team of hundreds of lawyers it's kind of an unfortunate situation, but that's the world we live in. If you want to make wow. anything new, thirty lawsuits ongoing at any time. That's uh, what's the size of the legal team at Coinbase? It's probably about um, seventy-five, eighty or so right now. Wow, damn. Okay, so I want to get back to uh, back into the privacy thing. So one of the things that I think has been concerning recently and and has really challenged my because i've always defended coinbase when people have been very critical because i've always felt like you've been a good on-ramp for people it's an easy place to go and buy your first bitcoin if you want to buy bitcoin 
But as I've gone down the rabbit hole with Bitcoin, I've become more concerned about privacy and human rights, oppressive regimes. And I've, I've come to understand more about how important privacy is. And I, I feel like Coinbase has been putting itself at odds with the industry and kind of working against the cultures and the culture and value of Bitcoin by almost lobbying for fewer freedoms or working for fewer freedoms. And, and specifically, I'm going to talk about Coinbase analytics now. And, you know, I, I read your tweet, Storm. I, I can fully understand how you rationalized it, but I still... I'm surprised you didn't realize the backlash you would get for that. Or perhaps you did. Maybe you're going to say, Pete, I knew I was going to get backlash. I didn't care. But it felt to me like it was a move you as a business didn't need to make. Did you expect a backlash? You're talking about launching the Coinbase Analytics products and and actually having, you know, government people pay for it. You're talking about. Yes. Yes, of course. I mean, I I recognize that that would probably not be popular to some people in, in the crypto community or Bitcoin community. Absolutely. I mean, you probably read the tweet storm, but I can talk a little bit about the rationale there. So I think, yeah, please. you know, look, obviously I'm a big supporter of privacy. I think um, what we've seen with encrypted messaging is going to happen in, in finance eventually. And there's a whole bunch of cool efforts happening around there, including not just people storing their own cryptocurrency, but like privacy coins and, and all that stuff. I think in the same way, the internet moved from HTTP to HTTPS with SSL and all that, like, Default encryption is kind of the new thing on the internet. That should be the default in finance too. I, I believe that. Now, Coinbase, like I think our primary function, the, the real thing that people come to use us for is that they need to be able to buy crypto and sometimes sell it too, right? And we need to get all the fiat money in the world into crypto. So if we if we lose on that front, that's not good for Bitcoin. Now, I think once people have some Bitcoin they've bought on Coinbase, if they want to take it off Coinbase and do their own self-custody, I think that's awesome. In fact, a lot of people probably should do that. You know, I don't know if everybody should do that because there's some people who there's probably a higher risk of losing it, you know, and all that stuff. But that's kind of a moot point. I think there's going to be a, a large group of people who should self-custody, a large group of people who should trust something else if they're not kind of um, tech savvy enough. And we don't, we're, we're kind of unopinionated on that. Like if they want to take it off of Coinbase, that's great. Now, in terms of keeping that that reliable bridge up between fiat and crypto, um, one of again one of these unfortunate realities of the world, like we didn't create it, is that the AML kind of uh, regulations out there are increasing in bank partners and all everybody, they're kind of increasingly expecting uh, blockchain analytics, right? And um, it's important to note that blockchain analytics companies, you know, there's a bunch of them out there, um, Chainalysis and and others, and they are essentially selling data that's publicly available it's just they're packaging it up right they're looking at all the public blockchains and they're saying what kind of patterns do we see and they're kind of selling that so that's what coinbase analytics is doing too the reason we bought that brought that in-house is that um, we didn't want to share as you know we always try to avoid sharing customer data with third parties and so they were kind of always like with chain analysis we had to kind of say well what do we have on this address Right. And they were inferring from that 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 was some kind of information about what customer might be behind that or something. So we decided we wanted to keep that functionality in house. And, you know, there's all there's also a market out there for these these products. And so I don't like we, we pay a lot of money in, in taxes to the IRS. Like, I don't want to just be doing free work for them. Um, <laughs> they can go out and buy this, these kind of blockchain analytics softwares anywhere they want. So I feel like we should get some money back for it if we have to do it as a cost of doing business. Yeah, so th- this is this is where I'm, I'm going to want to dig in a little bit. So 
One of the things I'm struggling with here is that if these blockchain analytics companies are only using information which is publicly available, then I don't understand I don't understand what the issue is with sharing information. What, what information would you be sharing with, say, Chainalysis if they're only using publicly available information? Well, I don't want to speak for third-party blockchain analytics companies, but yeah. I can tell you just Coinbase. So for Coinbase Analytics, it's it's only looking at publicly available data, for instance. It's not kind of mixing any of the data between customers and, and what they're getting off blockchains. Yeah, because this is this is the difficulty that people are going to really have with this is that, you know, you are a you are a supporter of privacy. You, you are a libertarian. You know, you're a sponsor of Bitcoin, but at the same time, you're also providing tools, selling it to the government, which is an, an invasion of privacy. And your your reasoning is, you know, one of your reasons is that you want to recover costs for doing that work. But the, I mean, I saw the 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 deals was 124. Thousand nine fifty with the IRS and with the Secret Service, it's yeah one hundred eighty three thousand over four years, and potentially a DEA deal of two hundred fifty thousand. But in the grand scheme of things, the amount of revenue Coinbase is doing, this isn't really very much. Agreed. And I think I I would have thought scrapping that would be a small price to pay for protecting the privacy of your customers and not essentially lubricating what the government wants to do. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. So, yes, I agree. The, the amount of revenue is pretty negligible in the scheme of things. We thought about even just if there's some kind of moral issue about the charging money for it, we thought about what if we just did it for free, but apparently the government doesn't let you do that. I don't think that would actually even matter anyway. The, the main thing is that it's not lubricating anything in my mind because they have many options of where to get that information. There's three, four major blockchain analytics companies they can even just, if they really wanted to, build it themselves. It's publicly available data, right? So they're going to do it one way or another. And one other kind of kind of inside baseball thing people may not realize too is that mm. we get a lot of inquiries from um, you know various regulators and IRS and people like that. And sometimes they'll say, hey, turn over all the information on this customer. Well, if we have a good relationship with them and they're using these tools that show publicly available data, we can kind of tell them behind the scenes, like this person isn't doing what you think they're doing and they listen to us, right? And so there's instances where we're actually able to protect customer information. And it's basically just like a goodwill thing. Like I know, you know, you and I may kind of feel like the world should be different in terms of privacy and everything, but the people who work at these agencies, obviously they have a different worldview, right? And that's, that's the law. So they're going to have to follow it. And if we just kind of like tell them, hey, you know, F off, like we don't want to help you. And um, we're just going to develop a, like a kind of hostile relationship with them where they're just going to request even more customer data from us. So it's one of these things just about, it's about life. A lot of, a lot of life comes down to relationships. Try to like help people if you can. And like, but we're going to push back if, if they try to go too far. Yeah. So I read, I read one quote about the software as well. It said Coinbase analytics data is fully sourced from online publicly available data and does not include any personal identifier information for anyone, regardless of whether or not they use Coinbase. So essentially, there there is very little difference between the data that you provide and someone like Chain Analysis, Chain Analysis provides, or Elliptic. I'm guessing, but but has that ever been? Has the code been publicly audited? Would you allow external people to audit that code to verify that kind of statement 
Because at least that might reassure people a little bit. Hmm. For Coinbase Analytics? Yeah. It's an interesting idea. I think, um, you know, this once companies get to a certain size, there's always this question about, are these things firewalled off, right? Like hmm. inside large financial service companies like Goldman Sachs, right? They're always trying to figure out like, well, does the person who's trading on behalf of a client, is that information separate from the people who are trading, you know, um, corporate funds or something like that? And you could imagine all kinds of issues. So I, yeah, let me, let me look into that. I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I'm not opposed to having, we have so many audits happening anyway. <laughs> I'm happy to have come, come have another one. I don't know exactly what kind of firm would do that, but I'd be happy to look into it. It might even just be a well-respected couple of independent Bitcoin developers or developers. Cause what I'm thinking is if, you know, other, other exchanges can't get away from AML KYC. So there's no point it's no point giving Coinbase a hard time around this because all exchanges are, are bound to these rules. And if you're using, if you're creating software which does exactly the same as chain analysis, which you would have to use, you know, if you weren't building your rows uh, own, at least having that um, kind of publicly audited would be one step further. I also think I, I don't know if you ever considered having a, like a a policy, a public policy in terms of your work with agencies and and including. Uh, communications on your website because there's certain people in the world i guess who might be buying bitcoin from you who might not realize that the data may be being shared so you know specifically i would think of perhaps american venezuelans or american iranians who might be using bitcoin to send back to their family and if they're buying it from coinbase and they're not aware that this is trackable this this could endanger their their lives or, or certainly some of their freedoms or the freedoms of their families back home if this is tracked have you ever considered the implications of where how that data might be misused by oppressive regimes? Um, yeah, well, first of all, I think that's a, probably a good idea. We should, I'd be happy to. We have some internal policies about which clients we decide to work with and which ones we don't. There might be a way we can put out that more publicly. Um, happy to look into that. And yes, I. By the way, I do think you know the promise of an open financial system is that people everywhere in every country should have financial infrastructure and the ability to kind of participate in the global economy. So obviously there's a number of rules in place for U.S. companies around where, how they can move money to these sanctioned countries. And I have kind of my own personal views on that, but that's that's the world we live in. I, I agree with you. I think there could be people who are caught off guard by that and they, they're trying to just help their family in another country or something and they accidentally run afoul of this. So, yeah, I mean, I'll say here, like if people are concerned about that, you know, and they need to use Coinbase as a place to buy cryptocurrency, well, they probably shouldn't uh, do something that they're, you know, breaks the law because there we are kind of a place where you're not going to be anonymous. But hopefully, I'm hoping hopeful that like the cryptocurrency ecosystem more broadly and Bitcoin generally can help people like that, even if they can't do it through Coinbase, because to me that's just an important part of freedom for everybody in the world. Yeah, there was a quote by Andreas that really got me with this. He said, you lose your privacy today and you're punished later. So one of the problems with privacy is that you lose your privacy every day, but you don't pay the price for that until perhaps a lot later. And you can't immediately identify the moment at which your loss of privacy goes from something that is an inconvenience to a deadly risk. And he specifically talked about countries that perhaps go from you know, maybe a liberal democracy democracy to something more authoritarian. We've seen it in Hungary, we've seen it in Turkey, and perhaps these pools of data could end up being being used against you. And I think that is that is the concern. 
and therefore it feels like perhaps with someone like Coinbase, you've gone from somebody that fights the, you know, supports privacy to perhaps, I don't know, just letting your guard down a little bit, maybe not fighting for the protection of privacy as much. Um, I don't expect you to, well, no, look, look, you should answer that how you want. Yeah, look, I can totally understand that point of view. And, you know, I have to say my where my head goes as kind of an engineer is how can we make this a technology solution so that it just can't be traced? It's not like, um, you know, we have to rely on Coinbase to go fight every regulator out there and push back. Like, you know, the laws are going to change. Like we're trying to employ people in these different countries. Like we're going to always have to make some decision, um, t- a lot of tough decisions, right? But, you know, if we can get to a world where it's HTTPS instead of HTTP, maybe that's with privacy coins, maybe something else. I feel like that is a technological solution, which you don't have to trust Coinbase at that point. Like it can't be it can't be tracked either way. Right. In some ways, that's the more crypto native solution is like, you know, I don't have to trust it. It's I I can trust in the code, not like in the laws of men or something like that. Yeah, that's fair. Perhaps maybe if you sponsor a couple of developers, it could be those working on Bitcoin privacy. I think <laughs> I think that would perhaps go down well. Yeah. Um, interesting that you mentioned uh, privacy coins, because obviously we've had with Zcash recently that a shielded transaction was traced. And I think people kind of have you know, weird issues with Zcash. Monero is one of those things that some maximalists will go, oh, I'm a maximalist, but I'm okay with Monero. Is there a reason you've never allowed for trading of Monero with Coinbase because obviously other exchanges do, Kraken does, Binance does. What's the reason perhaps? Because in some ways in the in the world of kind of Bitcoin versus altcoins, that's Monero's the most credible one that you could add to your listing. Yeah. Well, you know, I would personally like to list it. This is an issue with regulators, right? Where this is us going out and being an educational resource. And I can tell you that where, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, we were going out there and telling them about Bitcoin. They were like, whoa, what is that? Like, that's mm-hmm. so that's crazy. That's scary, you know? And now Bitcoin is like GE stock or something. It's like the most tried and true thing. Oh yeah, we understand that. But privacy coins is the next thing, one of the next things on the horizon amongst many. And they're very up in arms about that. And they're very concerned about it. So we haven't been able to list that at least in the way that we would like because of those reasons. But I think with enough time and education, people will get comfortable with it, and it'll be there'll be some new, even newer thing on the horizon that they're worried about. But privacy coins will kind of become more mainstream over time, I hope, and and maybe privacy solutions on Bitcoin too. What would the regulatory reason be for not listing Monero when, say, Kraken has? That's what I don't understand. What, what, what yeah. How can they could do it, and you can't? Because you you're operating in the same jurisdiction. Yeah. So. This, this gets, again, into inside baseball. So there's often regulators are not going to come out and um, make an official like law or declaration. Sometimes that will say this is allowed and this, this is not. A lot of it is like it's behind the scenes conversations where they're, they're kind of saying, like, we very much, you know, don't think you should do this. And that's then we have the, uh, the conversation. Well, are you telling us that you don't like it or are you telling us that you are going to sue us if we do it? And, you know, then we have to kind of go do our own legal analysis and say, if they do sue us, do we think we will win or not? And we're not opposed to engaging in some of that. You know, financial service companies um, end up in lawsuits with regulators all the time. And it's not, it's kind of just part of doing business, but it's expensive. And so you and it, and it, and it harms the relationship. Right. So you need to kind of pick your battles. So it's a constant kind of. Um, 
negotiation along with the education that's kind of saying, okay, this one we think is really important. You know what? I know that you're really unhappy with it. We respect that, but we are going to do it anyway because we believe it fits within the law. And here's our legal analysis. Other times we say, you know, we don't know if this is like a hill we want to die on. And we kind of have to make a lot of tough calls like that. There's this is kind of the art of a lot of what the legal and compliance profession does is um, they go in there and they they have to make risk based decisions all the time. And I would say that, you know, Coinbase probably depends where you fall in the spectrum, right? Like compared to Fidelity or something like that, we're like way out here. We're taking way more risk. But compared to, you know, the other some of the other exchanges out there that are probably being a bit more aggressive, we're probably taking we have a little bit more of a conservative approach. And the calculus in my mind for that is that I want us to be a company that stands the test of time and doesn't get taken out by some kind of enforcement action or cascade of events or, or whatever. And so I'm playing for the long term here. I don't I know that this is going to take a long time to get people comfortable with this technology. And I don't want to cut corners in, in the short term and like certainly put the company or myself at risk. No, it makes sense. Like it's your business, you know, you can make the decisions which suit you. You want to grow your business. I get it. It was just interesting to hear that. Um, I've got a couple couple more tough questions and we can get back onto some of the, the nicer ones. So I have to talk to you about hacking team. It's a yeah. really, I know it's a tough one and you've taken a lot of, I, I think well-deserved criticism for this one. This is, this is a very hard one where I can't rationalize any of the decisions and mistakes, but it's good to get it out in the open. Let's talk about what happened here. Obviously, you wanted to buy some software and ended up purchasing Neutrino, which was obviously linked to the hacking team. Do you want to talk about what happened there, like as candidly as you can? Yeah, sure. So I think that's definitely an area where we made a mistake. So, you know, like I talked about earlier, we wanted to build out some of our blockchain analytics capability in-house. And, you know, whenever you're doing that, you can kind of make a decision about do we want to build something ourselves, we want to try to buy something as a start to the team or invest in something, maybe as a third option. So in this case, we we have a team that does corporate development, M&A. They looked at the landscape and um, we did identify a couple potential targets for acquisition. We're, we, we went out and did some diligence on the team, but most of our diligence was around the technology itself and um, the team that we would um, get, like the engineers and things like that. What we failed to do was the diligence that was kind of more around our values and our culture and, and that kind of thing. And so when we did make the acquisition, we started to see a lot of noise online about people saying, hey, do you know, do you know who you just acquired? And um, that's where I started to look into it along with the team. And we realized, OK, you know, we might have hired some black hats here or people who at least are gray and don't have there, there was some, you know, they probably drew the line where we would not have drawn the line about the kind of people they, they were working with. And so at that point, we kind of had to go make a tough decision and go talk with these people and say, you know, how much of this is true? Like what actually happened? There was a lot of pressure. I remember at that time where people were saying, like, you need to fire them, you need to fire them, you need to fire them. And look, I, you know, I, I was like out of town. I, I needed to come back and fly back. I was like, I'm not going to fire these people without like talking to them first and actually understanding what really happened, because I don't want to. I think it's just kind of an unethical thing to like, because someone's angry on Twitter, you would fire them without even like talking mm. to them. So we did go do some diligence. We talked to them and we said, all right, like this part, we, we probably, it's our, it's our mistake. We should have told you this before we acquired you. And we tried to create a, a win-win just exit agreement with them. That was like, took our responsibility for it. You can't work at Coinbase. 
But, you know, we do need to kind of pivot this team. And so we then had a, a, a tough job of sort of rebuilding that team with with new people and, and uh, getting it to a place where we had the technology working as described. So I think the main thing we learned from that is there's additional diligence steps we've got to do in M&A. And like a lot of things, like a lot of M&A deals, things are moving quick, you know, because like uh-huh. it's a competitive process. You've got to like check the everything as close as you can, but then you got to make a decision. And so we moved too quick on that one. How, how involved is someone like yourself in the due diligence process? Does, is it just an external job and someone gives you a report? Are you yourself responsible for doing part of the due diligence? So at that size of company, I think we were probably doing, I don't know, we'd probably done like five or six kind of M&A deals that year. Um, at that size, I had not met with them prior to us um, signing the agreement, not personally, at least. It wasn't until we realized there was a problem afterwards that I got involved. So we do we do a number of Aqua hires every year. And for every one that we do, we probably look at 10 deals. So there's a lot of there's a whole team that just does nothing but that. And I, I typically don't meet with those teams before they come on board. Right. OK. Yeah, because this this was the one that like. I mean, there's a few things that make it really difficult to defend Coinbase at times. And I, th- I think you see it in one way and people see it in another way. You're on the inside and people are on the outside. But this this one is re- really tough to rationalize. I, you know, I'm just going to quote reporters without borders for the first time compiled a list of five corporate enemies of the internet, five private sector companies that it regards as digital mercenaries because they sell products that are used by authoritarian governments to commit violations of human rights and freedom of information, and almost certainly hacking team, some of their work led to journalists being arrested and, and deaths, of, deaths of people. Now, you're not responsible for that. I'm not holding you responsible for that in any way at all. This is those people. But the important question to ask is that this information wasn't hard to find. It was a bit, bit of Google work. And I guess the question that I would put to you and many would say is that if if your due diligence fails on this, you know, how how do how are people meant to trust you with the privacy related to their purchase of Bitcoin? And I know that's a tough question, but I, th- I think it's one that needs asking. Yeah, you know it is a tough question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. Like this is an instance where we we messed up. You know that we should have done more diligence. Since that's happened, we've revamped our diligence process to include these kind of like reputational checks in the process. Yeah, there's, there's really no excuse I can give you. So all I can tell you is that we make mistakes as well. And um, a lot of building a company is like trying to learn from the mistakes and just get better over time. Okay. I, th- I mean, that's fair. I mean, well, you can't do much more than, a, than apologize. Um, but I'm glad you answered it. Um, but I do have just another question relating to it. So you talked about spinning the team out. And I don't know if you can or if it's been publicly revealed you know, who has been spun out and who's been left in. But I think people would want to know, like specifically, can can you talk about that? Yeah, so this was a tough decision, right? Because I understand why people would want to know. And there's also an issue of just like, honestly, it's like privacy and respect for these individual people, right? Like there's all kinds of situations that happen at a company where somebody may exit. And I think it's just nobody wants to work at a company where, you throw people under the bus when they when they leave. So I, what I can tell you is that we we met with everybody on the team and we said, okay, who, who was there like a real question mark about given this past, the examples that you just mentioned? And really all of the key people where there was some kind of 
question mark or reputational or values issue, uh, were exited from the company. There was a handful of engineers that were lower level folks that we felt like they were not like the decision makers, they weren't as culpable. And frankly, we needed their help to transition some of the technology to actually be able to use it. So I feel I feel good about like the way we kind of cleanly exited that and, and did it with respect for those people because it was our mistake. You know, they they were people who said, Hey, I thought we were getting acquired and we were joining this company, and the minute minute later they're getting fired. Like that's that's a really bad experience for them too. So all around, you know, we just mm. we just messed up and we tried to do the best we could for everybody involved. Great. And, and and I respect the fact that you can't talk about who was and who is still on the team. And, and I guess I'd rather use this then as an opportunity to say, uh, I would list four people if any of those were still on the team. I think, and p- people knew about it, I think that would be a mistake. And you don't have to answer this, but I would just say if, if Giancarlo Russo, Alberto Ornegi, Marco Valeri or Lucas Guerra were still on the team. So I was going to ask if they are, as you can't answer it because it becomes like a game of Sudoku, right? So I, I just pr- kind of put it out there that I think if any of those four were still in any way on the team, I would go and reconsider that and reflect on it. They might all be gone, which which is great. But no, I appreciate you answering this. And, and you know, I will say to everyone, listen to this. You know, one of my things that I said to the start with is that I don't want there to be any questions that I can't ask. And, and you've agreed to do that. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're running out of time. <laughs> And I'm, I'm definitely going to want to do a follow-up because there's so much more I haven't talked to you about. But there's a couple other things. Let's, let's finish on. So let's let's go. Can you tell us anything about the IPO rumors? <laughs> no, I can't really say anything about that. And um, yeah, I, it, we don't want to comment on any rumors. Okay. All right. We'll leave that one out. Okay. So a couple of other things then. Just a couple of the questions people probably want to ask. Maybe heading to a next another big bull run. There's been lots you know, happening out there. Um what is Coinbase doing to prepare? Because you you have one of those unique challenges of a, a, a different need of, say, customer service and certain technology requirements for scaling based on very short periods of bull runs. Um, you had a lot of difficulty in 2017, and and I think it's un- I think it's understandable. I think people don't understand how difficult it is to recruit the right people for customer service, onboard them, and then deal with the fluctuations of staff requirements. So. What did you learn about 2017? How are you taking that forward for scaling? And will we ever get to a point where the Coinbase site doesn't go down when they say a big spike in buying and selling? Yeah. Yeah, so 2017 was definitely um, a challenging time period for us and I think everybody in Bitcoin because of the scaling challenges. I mean, yeah, to give you a sense, I think trading volume grew like 40x maybe or something like that. And it's kind of unprecedented, you know, most com- companies, even going through hyper growth, they might grow like three or four or five X a year. Like I think Uber at its peak maybe grew like five X a year. And at that time period, we grew 40 X in a year. So it was it was pretty uh, harrowing there for a bit. And what a lot of people, I think, remember during that time period, too, was it just it was really hard to get an answer from customer support because we had a kind of 40 X increase there as well. And I remember one of the things we did was. In addition to bringing like a whole new leadership team, we spun up a new support facility. I think we hired 300 people in one quarter, something like that, like contractors, right? So it was like, and they were all just like trying to get trained up and like, you know, I mean, it was it was madness. So my hope is we don't go through anything quite that crazy again, but we have to be prepared if it does happen. So 
we have a project internally. It's called a Pan, Project Pamplona, which Pamplona is the city in Spain where they do the running of the bulls. Yeah. You know, so we running the bulls, yeah, yeah. So we're working a lot on um, scalability throughout the company in all aspects, right? Both from like an engineering architecture point of view and um, also from a customer support point of view. And so, you know, we're trying to think about how to make those systems more horizontally scalable and remove single points of failure. And how can we spin up an additional 500 customer support agents if we needed to, like in a very short period, time period, right? So those are the kinds of things we're trying to do to prepare um, if and when that happens, because you know, the worst feeling in the world is the price starts moving all over the place and then people can't trade. Like that's the thing we've got to try to avoid. Brilliant. All right, Brian, we'll close out a couple of the questions. What keeps you motivated? And do you want to do this forever? Or does there come a time where you think I'll exit from Coinbase, I'll avert my stripes, I can go and do something else. And what do you think you might go and do? Yeah, well, the thing that keeps me motivated is that, you know, I'm an engineer at heart. I love building things with technology. That's, I think I'll always do that my whole life in some way, shape or form. You know, sometimes Coinbase is very stressful and I've got to, I've had to always remind myself to kind of like, it's a marathon, not a sprint and like bring the executive team in who can help, like take time off when you need it. So I think, you know, my hope is that Coinbase over time can be a, a company that has repeatable innovation. It becomes a portfolio of products. We can keep, keep launching new things um, and eventually, end up, you know, kind of like Alphabet or Berkshire or something where we have like a holding company that has a portfolio of a lot of different cool things we're building with technology in the world. That's that's kind of my passion. And I think Coinbase is going to be a really important vehicle to do that for many, many years to come. And I I hope I can be the CEO for, you know, decades or whatever. But, you know, uh, hopefully I can I can also build other cool things on the side. You know, I've, I've helped um, create this uh, charity, GiveCrypto.org, which is sending yeah. money to kind of emerging markets. And, you know, there's a crypto startup I'm trying to help on the side called Research Hub, which is kind of using um, crypto to sort of help bring a community together to accelerate scientific innovation and so, or scientific research. So there's all kinds of things I'm interested in I'm, um, that I read a lot about on the side. And I hope that I can just be someone who helps create, accelerate the pace of progress and innovation in the world. And I think financial services is like one of the best ways to do that and economic freedom. So I'm, I'm excited to keep working on Coinbase. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate you giving me this time, being candid, being open to discuss anything. I, I think it's been useful. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, it's it's going to be tough. There's people who have already decided they won't like this interview and they're going to listen to it and they'll be very critical. And there'll be people who I think were a little bit more open-minded. And I think there'll be people who just want to hear a little bit more from you and perhaps, you know, see some a bit more of a closer relationship with the Coinbase community. I hope you do the externalized developer funding i think that would be a great bit of goodwill and i hope you and i can keep this dialogue open i've, I've got more questions i'd love to do this again sometime but i just want to say thank you for coming on and doing this yeah i'm happy to keep in touch and thank you for doing what you're doing too you're you're helping get more information out there to the community and, and helping bitcoin succeed so i appreciate it brilliant okay we'll take care brian speak to you soon likewise cheers all right what do you think of that one that's quite a big interview. Do you know what? It's the first time I've been nervous about one for a while. I felt a lot of pressure with this. I felt like I had a lot of responsibility to get this right. And, you know, I've listened back and I hate listening back to my interviews. I very rarely listen back. And there's some areas I think I could have done better. But still, I'm very happy with it overall. I mentioned in my introduction, I expect there will be a mix of responses. There's going to be people who hated it. I think there's going to be people who hated it, who hated it before they even listened to it, had made their decision 
in advance. Um, hopefully, some people will listen to it more objectively. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I think we made some progress. And as I said, look, Coinbase isn't going away. They are going to remain a massive on-ramp for Bitcoin. And I think if they start funding open source development and allow scrutiny of their analytic software code, they are positive steps. I also think that having this bridge to discuss some of the concerns people have with their responsibility towards Bitcoin and, and privacy itself helps. And if Brian is willing, there will be a further interview, perhaps further interviews where we can touch on subjects we didn't have time to fit into in this one and also follow up on some of the things we discussed I do just want to say thanks again to Matt O'Dell, Lee Quinn and Janine for helping me prepare for the interview. I reached out to all of them. I had a bunch of questions about specific subjects. They were very helpful. So thank you again for helping with this. Also, thanks to everyone who listens and supports the show, especially my haters who give me shit on Twitter all the time. If you've tuned in for this one, I think I appreciate you the most today. Anyway, I hope you all have a great weekend. If you do have any feedback about this, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, you can go onto my website, whatbitcoindid.com, and that explains everything you can do there. And if you want to check out my other work, I do have another show, which is called Defiance. That's available at defiance.news. As I said, have a great weekend. I'm looking forward to having a weekend off, but I will see you next week. Got loads more amazing interviews planned. All right, I'll see you all soon.